Well, do take your Bibles and turn with me to John's Gospel, sometimes misunderstood as being one of the easier Gospels. We're going to find that that's not the case in the sense that John is one of the deepest and uh, most demanding of all of the Gospel writers, which is probably why he's the last to write his Gospel. He knows that we have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. By the time he writes, he is reflecting more fully uh, on what has been reported and what he knows about Jesus. Well, in her 1995 hit, What If God Was One of Us, Joan Osborne reflected on what it would be like if she bumped into God on His way home. She sang this, if God had a name, what would it be? And what would you call it? Would you call it to his face if you were faced with him in all his glory? What would you ask if you had just one question? What if God was one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home? And in many ways, the question that Joan Osborne raised in that song, it was a haunting song and, and uh, was very useful because it became the spin-off for Lots of sermons, uh, and I've been quoting, I'm still quoting it. It's 1995 it was sung. That's a long time ago. I was still in short pants and at school. And, uh, but it raises a number of questions that I think the Apostle John is answering in this book that we're going to start studying. Can we know God? Can we know about Him? Can we know Him personally? Does God have a name. And if he has a name, what is it? What would you say to him if you were to meet him in all his glory, face with him in all his glory? And what if God was one of us? Just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. Can you imagine? Well, John doesn't need to imagine because John knows that he can answer all of those questions. He can answer all of those questions, and he sets about the task of doing so. And in this opening section, which I think John must have spent a lot of time thinking about and plotting and planning and sketching and writing and putting in the trash and rewriting because it's so perfectly balanced and so perfectly expressed. And I think he wrote it probably after he'd written the rest of the gospel and he had been thinking the whole way through, how can I launch into this story? Many preachers who spend more time on their introduction than they do on the, on the body of the sermon, and this is not one of those, by the way, as you already know. John has taken his time to reflect and to think seriously before he writes what he writes. And as he begins this journey, this book that he has written, he describes the stages of God's self-revelation, if I can use that language. You know what the word to reveal means? It means to make yourself known. Uh, Well, here's God's making of Himself known. He's introducing Himself. This is how God has reached out to you, to us, to this world in which we live. And especially, He wants to say to us right at the very beginning that, that God has reached out to us in words, in speech. 
He has introduced himself, not just by demonstrating his power and by throwing things into space and by getting your attention that way, but he has he spoken. He is a communicating God. He has spoken. And the very introduction, did you notice, the very introduction with which we are so familiar emphasizes the word. We put it in uppercase letters because it is of vital importance here. In the beginning was the word. God has communicated from the very beginning. Indeed, from before the beginning, God has been a communicating God. And what he wants to say is that God has communicated through a person. We'll see this. And this one through whom God has communicated to us is the first, the fullest, and the final word that God has to say to us about himself. The first, the fullest, and the final word that God has to say about himself. Now let's look at how John introduces it. First of all, he says, this one of whom he's writing is the first word. In the beginning was the word. And if you're familiar with the Bible at all, what does that make you think of? Reverses the clock back to the very beginning of the Bible, doesn't it? To the opening words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So right at the very beginning of this track that he is writing about Jesus, I, I'm running ahead of myself, but right at the very beginning, he connects what he is writing with the Torah, with the law that, give, that was given to Israel. Right at the very beginning of the Bible, he connects these two parts and brings them together. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning was the Word. The God who was in the beginning is the God who has communicated to us in John's day and before John's eyes and into John's ears. And he's going to share this with us. The God who was in the beginning has expressed himself. This idea of God communicating to us in words is bristling in, in the Hebrew Scriptures. It's all over the place. It's in the Psalms, for example, in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims His handiwork. Day to day, pass out speech. Night to night, reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out to all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Words, voice, declaring, speech, revealing, proclaiming. Words, communication. Because, you see, one of the things we learn, we learn right at the very beginning as we read these words is that John is an evangelist to God's covenant people. He is writing to the covenant people of God we know as Israel. And he is saying right at the very beginning, 
that the God of Israel in the beginning created the world. He's making that clear to any Gentiles that are listening in, any Romans or Greeks who are listening in. He's wanting us to, he's signaling right at the very beginning of his tract that it is the God of Israel about whom he is speaking. The God who gave the Torah, the God who created everything. And he's driving us back to Genesis because he wants us to see from Genesis the powerful effectiveness of the Word of God. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said. God said over and over again, and whenever God says, things happen. Whenever God speaks, something comes out of nothing. Whenever God speaks, life is breathed into clay and makes it a living creature. He's taking us right back to Genesis and he's reminding us that the Word of God in Scripture, in Hebrew Scripture, is the most powerful and effective thing. That's why the psalmists and the prophets are always talking about the Word of God and even, even describe the Word of God in personified terms. The Word of God. Isaiah, the prophet, in Isaiah 55, says this, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall not return to me empty. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Here's God speaking in that Isaiah passage. And he's providing a framework for us to understand what this word, the word, means here in John 1. And he's saying this, the word is something God speaks and sends. And that word pursues, that word accomplishes the mission of God. The Word does things. John Calvin says this, Just as in human beings, speech is called the expression of their thoughts, so it is not inappropriate to apply this to God and say that He expresses Himself by His speech or Word. So we could say, in the beginning was the self-expression of God, God expressing Himself, making Himself known in the beginning was the Word, the first Word. Secondly, the fullest, fullest Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, I've already said that this expression stands at the beginning of the Torah, and for any Jewish reader or listener to what John has written or is saying, would immediately realize how solemn and how serious and sacred his language is. And everything that follows in this gospel that he's writing is set against that first fundamental and foundational revelation of God through Moses to the children of Israel. He's signaling up to you that when you read the word God here in this first verse, he is not speaking about godness in general. 
nor is he speaking about the divine in general. He is speaking about the particular God who revealed himself to Adam and to Abraham and to Moses and who is described in the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. He is speaking of the monotheistic God of Judaism. That's absolutely crucial. The faith about which John is writing about is not about another God or many gods. It is the faith of Israel in one God, the unity of the Godhead. And therein lies the surprising news of the Christian message. Because John is now going to point, having pointed us backwards to the high point of revelation to Israel, the Torah, the law, John is now going to say that the, there is an even higher point being reached at this stage in the history of humanity. Because at this stage in the history of humanity, a revelation is being given to us, and he's writing about it here in this book, about this one that he's introducing to us, who shares God's eternity in the beginning, that is, prior to creation, prior to anything. In the beginning was the Word. Now, John knew, and uh, any Jewish reader would know that the, the, the prophets and the rabbis located the wisdom and the Word of God as being something that belonged to the essential deity, the, the essential godness of God. In fact, in the Hebrew Scriptures, there's what we call the wisdom literature, books like Proverbs and so on. And in that wisdom literature, we are told quite clearly that wisdom predates creation. There had to be wisdom before God made things. God had to have a clue before he actually created stuff. He had to have a mind. There had to be wisdom. Wisdom preceded creation. Wisdom and the word that expresses it comes before the stuff that God makes. So in the beginning, before the foundation of the world, was the word. And for John, there is no Greek philosophical principle here. The first Greek, uh, the word is more than the philosophical first principle of Greek thought. He is an eternal being, this one who's being described. He is an eternal being who has from all eternity been inseparable from God. You cannot, you can't separate the wisdom and the word of God from the God who expresses his word or who thinks those wise thoughts or expresses that wisdom. Can't separate those two things. This word shares God's eternity. This word shares God's nature. You see what he says? In the beginning was the word and the word was with God. And the Word was God. Was God. The Word could say, I and the Father are one. The Word shares not only the divine eternity, it shares the divine essence. You can't put a cigarette paper between the Word and God. The Word was God. 
Now, ever since the early church, when a group of people known as the Arians, and uh, our day, where a group of people known as Jehovah's Witnesses operate with the same principles, people have interpreted or come to this verse and have raised a question about the way in which Paul, uh, John rather, expresses himself here. The Word was God. Because he leaves out the definite article. And, and they say, if he really means to say that the Word is God, surely he should put in the definite article, the Word was the God or the God. As it is, it could read, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was Ah, God. And they make much of that. Problem is, of course, that in Greek, if, if the phrase was written like this, the word was the God, you could actually read it round the other way. The God was the word. But John doesn't want to say that. He doesn't want to say all there is of God is the Word. He has been very careful and deliberate in leaving out the definite article. He doesn't want anyone to think for one moment that all there is to God is the Word. What he does want you to think about is that there is more to God and the Word is an essential component of who God is the God of the Shema, the God of the Torah, the God of Israel, this one God. The Word was God. And the word for God there is not the word theios, which we would translate divine. He's not just saying that the Word is a divine being. It's the normal word theos. The Word is God. The only appropriate response to this one from a human being is one we find being used later on in John's Gospel by a human being towards the one that he is describing who bows before him and says, My Lord and my God. The Word shares God's eternity. The Word shares God's nature. And the Word shares God's joy. The Word was with God. It's the most beautiful expression in the Greek. It means face to face, in the sense of intimate, personal, closeness and enjoyment. The Word is intimate with God. He's close with God. Face to face. A couple standing in front of this church, looking into each other's eyes, being married in that kind of intimacy. That's how it's used at a human level, but here used of God. It's underlining that that there was a relationship, that there is a relationship, a relationship that goes before the beginning. This word not only has the same nature as God, he has the face of God. 
He looks into the face of God. The Word is not like a creature. Do you know Do you know the law, the Torah says? No one can look at God and live. No creature can look into the face of God and live. But the Word has from all eternity looked into the face of God and been the object of God's delight. Because we was in the beginning with God. He is God. And he is face to face with God. In other words, not only does he share the same nature as God, the Father as we will come to see him called, but he can be distinguished without shattering the unity of the Godhead, without destroying the monotheism of Judaism. He can be distinguished. You can distinguish between the man and the man's Words, the noise you hear reverberating around your eardrums in this auditorium this evening. You can distinguish Jesus or the Word is the fullest Word of God. But then the third thing that John says about this one is that he is the final Word. The final Word. You see, John has a double reason in using the word anarchy in the beginning, that first phrase. He has another reason for using that phrase. Not only is he pointing backwards to Genesis 1, but he's pointing to the reality that is coming about or has come about in his lifetime because throughout Scripture and actually throughout John's writing, the word arche, beginning, is going to be used of a new creation. Something new is happening. Because in between Genesis 1-1 and John 1-1 lies a crucial event in history. And he's going to tell us what that event is. It's going to be a creation, a creative event. The creation of a man. And he's going to, he's building up to that announcement that he's going to make later. And in verse 4, he begins to show that what is involved in this arche, this new beginning, like the old beginning, is life. Do you notice that? In him. So it's being underlined. It is a him. It is a person that he's speaking about. In him, the one who was in the beginning with God, the one who was with God, the one who is God, who was in the beginning with God, through whom all things were made, and without whom nothing was made. Nothing. He is, he is the mediator of creation. He is the cause of creation. He is the very means by which God created. He spoke and things came into being. Now he says, in him was life. And the life was the light of men. In him was life. He is the creative light. You remember? In Genesis 1, God creates the light, and then He creates life. Light is the preparation for life. Now He says about this new creation, that this one who was in the beginning, and through whom everything was made in the beginning, is part of this new work. He is involved in a new creation, and He is the life of this new creation. He is the light who brings life to people in this new creation. 
That's what he's describing. In the old creation, you remember, God said, let there be light, and there was light. And then he began to organize how the light should work in the universe, placing light sources in the sky to separate between light and darkness. The light makes it possible for life to exist. And so, after the shining of the light, comes the population of the planet with life on days five and six. Now in verse four, he's introducing another dimension. Because between Genesis 1 and John 1, something more serious and darker has happened. The light shines in the darkness, he says in verse 5. In the original creation, it was physical darkness. When God said, let there be light, the light shone in the physical darkness. But now John is moving us to this new creation, and he's addressing something that has happened in the history of the world early on in its story that has left the world in a state of darkness. There has been a, a deep disruption on, in the human race, in the human story, in creation and in history. A disruption. That disruption has left everything in the dark. Everything and everybody in the dark. Separated from God, trying to find their way home. And it's that darkness that John has in mind here. The kind of darkness that Moses was addressing when he wrote the Torah in the first place. The kind of darkness that God wanted to dispel with the light of his law when he offered it to God's people at Sinai. Now something of that, ma that magnitude is happening again. God is, is doing something in this one who is the Word, doing something of a magnitude even greater than that, addressing this present darkness. The God of this age has blinded the minds of people so they don't see the glory of God. He's addressing this present darkness. And he says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That word that he uses there actually has a, I think he's making a word play in the use of that, the word because it can be taken both ways, and I think he intends us to take it both ways. The darkness has not apprehended it or comprehended it. In other words, the people who are in the dark didn't really get what was going on. But it has another sense. The darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not squashed it. The, the darkness has not destroyed it. The darkness has not obliterated the light. And in both senses. On the one hand, the people who live and walk in darkness don't get what the light was about. But on the other hand, the people walking in darkness have not managed, though they've tried, they've not managed to obliterate the light that was shining in the darkness. And so John, as he tells the story, introduces the true light. 
He does so by talking about one who was sent from God, whose name was John. John, the writer of the gospel, by the way, never talks about himself by name. This is the only John that he talks about, and that is the John that is normally called John the Baptist, but he doesn't give him that title. He wants to focus on John as a witness, and he does so in these verses. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The sending is a missionary word. It's the normal word used of God sending a prophet. John was a prophet. And as a prophet of God, he came as a witness. He goes on to say in verse 7, to bear witness about the light. That is, the light who is the Word. The Word is the light, the personal Word, the personal light that shines in the darkness. And he underlines this, that the business of John the Baptist, the business of John, was that all might believe in the light through him. That was the business of his life. John came hoping, preaching, praying, working, serving, that people might believe in the coming light. Just in case you didn't get the message, verse 8, John repeats, John the writer repeats, he was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. Then in verse 9, he lays it out for us, the true light. That is, the genuine light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. I think the ESV is right here. It is the light who was coming into the world. That's about which, what John is writing here. And he's picking up again some language from the Hebrew Scriptures. For example, Isaiah, again, those who live in the valley of the shadow of death, upon them the light has shone. Isaiah 60 envisions a time when the nations will come and will walk in the light of the Lord. That true light has come into the world. And John says this is the true light which enlightens everyone. Now, that's not an absolute everyone, as we'll see in a moment. But everyone who is enlightened is enlightened by the true light. In other words, The only enlightenment that really matters in life, the only enlightenment that actually brings you out of the darkness and gives you hope in a world of hopelessness and joy in a world of often joylessness and gives you direction in a world that is often directionless is believing in the one he's introducing to us as the true light, the light of the world the light that shines in the darkness. John will go on later on in chapter 3 to say this. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. The light was coming into the world so that whoever believes in me, the light can say, I have come as light into the world that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If you believe in the light, the one of whom John is writing goes on to say, and you can read this in chapter 12, believe in the light that you may become children 
of the light. So the true light which enlightens everyone, enlightens everyone who will what? Who will believe in him. He was in the world. John goes on to say, his very presence, his very arrival, his very being here precipitates a crisis among human beings. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Everything, everybody, everywhere made by him. He was its creator. And the world did not know him. Didn't recognize him. Didn't appreciate him. He told a story once, this one of whom John's writing, about a landowner who had tenants. And the tenants were supposed to produce fruit and pay their taxes to the, the landowner, and they stopped doing it, and he sent people to them to tell them it's time you paid up, time you paid up, and they killed each one of these servants that came. And eventually he sent his son, they didn't recognize that it was the landowner's son, and they killed him. They did not know him. That's true of the world as a whole. But John is more specific. He came to his own place. That's what it means literally in the Greek. He came to his own things, his own place. His own place, you'll discover as you go on in John's gospel, is Jerusalem, Judah. And he came to his own people, came to his own place, and his own people, those are the Jewish people. They were his people. They were his possession. God had said to Israel, Exodus 19, you shall be my possession among the nations. God has been clear from the very beginning his connection to Israel by his covenant commitment to them. They are his possession. They are his children. He came to his own place and his own possession, his own people did not receive him. Did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, like Abraham, who rejoiced to see his day, like Moses, who suffered, who suffered abuse in Egypt for his sake, like the prophets who came talking about him, pointing to him, speaking about him, and like a few people that Luke mentions at the beginning of his gospel, or or like the disciples that John will describe in this book, and like crowds of people on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem who believed in him, who believed in his name, his name, a circumlocution for, for God himself involving the honor that, is, that his name deserves. Hallowed is God's name. Sacred is God's name. Hebrew scriptures had taught that the righteous trust 
in God's name. And here John is saying, believing in the Word's name means trusting Him as God. Those who believe are granted the right to become children of God. Well, weren't these Jews already children of God? Yes, they were. They're called that over and over again. Israel is God's firstborn son. But being a child of God in name is one thing. Being a child of God in reality is another and is dependent on whether you are a believing Israelite. Believing Israelites become children of God now not by blood, nor by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, but of God. They enter into, by believing in the Word, this new creation. They enter into resurrection life of the new world to come. It begins now through a spiritual rebirth and ends with a physical, cosmic transformation of the universe. And then in verse 14, the Word became flesh. The stranger on the bus, the one standing in line with you at the grocery checkout, the person at the next table in Starbucks, the Word became flesh. He hasn't even told you his name yet. You know his name. He doesn't tell you his name till verse 17. This would have blown the minds of some of the Greek people who would have read John's writing. Flesh. Can you imagine God with skin on? And there's only one response that John calls on, and that is that we should believe in him, and that in believing in him, we might have life in his name. Father, thank you for your word, the word of God incarnate, the wisdom from on high that is made flesh in the womb of Mary, on the streets of Nazareth, on the cross of Calvary, and now on your throne of glory. May he be Lord in our hearts, we pray, in his strong name. Amen.